Viv, and you're listening to the What Gives Podcast. Today, we are talking with BIPOC Grief and Death Talk, and we have Carmen and Kayla here to really talk about um, their grief work and their work in the BIPOC community. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. I know we started off the season with experience camps, and you know we started talking a lot about the grief of children and working with people who have dealt with grief in the sense of death, but grief is just so much bigger than that. So I'm really excited to really talk about intersectional grief and have Carmen and Kayla lead us in this conversation. I have so much to learn. So welcome, Carmen and Kayla. (laughs) If y'all could be so generous in introducing yourselves and telling us how you got into grief work. So um, my name is Kayla Carter. I use she, her, and they, them pronouns. So the work that I do is mostly centered around disability justice and specifically how do we take a disability justice perspective to grief um, as well as intersectional perspective, which I'm sure we'll get into later. I will talk a bit more about how Carmen and I started, but just a bit more about the kind of grief work that I've been doing. Primarily, it's been really connected, like I said, to disability and disability justice, also to things such as race and class um, and gender and sexuality as well, and really thinking about how can we decolonize grief work, but also how, what does that look like through a lens of being disabled, but also what does that look like through a lens of spirituality as well? What does that look like through a lens of being a first-generation immigrant or a first-generation to immigrants? So things like that are some of the perspectives that I take when it comes to grief. And I guess on my end, I'm a, I'm a social worker, kind of in my nine-to-five or, or workspace, um, but I also do a lot of work around grief and grief education. I've done a lot of research and work around grief and labor, so grief and, and how grief comes up in the workplace, and also do a lot of work around like how to support people in the helping professions who are grieving. So a lot of that work, and I'm also a death doula and a, and a hospice volunteer, so we do a little bit of everything when it comes to like grief and death and dying. And a lot of the work that we do, again, is really intersectional around supporting people who are marginalized and dealing with kind of white supremacy and capitalism and ableism and how that impacts their grief in general and their life. So, yeah. That's so interesting. And I I do want to touch on death, the death doula part um, at some point, because I find grief work to be one of those things that is so like nebulous until you're really into it. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about why your organization, why y'all center BIPOC when talking about grief and what makes it different than the grief that we are seeing popularized and in media and in the Western world. Yeah, I think something that's really important to understand when even answering that question on like, why center BIPOC folks and specifically racialized and indigenous folks. Something that's really important to understand is when those of us who are the most deeply affected by things like imperialism and colonization and a lot of these institutions have our needs met, people who have more privilege end up getting their needs met. And not only do they get their needs met, they actually end up realizing that they have needs that they didn't even realize that they had in the first place, right? So that's something that 
I know Carmen and I are really proud of with the work that we do, that there's a level of nuance and specificity that's required when we're having conversations about grief that is experienced by racialized and indigenous folks. And in that, I think it's also important because it's very long overdue. I think it's really important that there is room and space and also like a vocabulary or even a conversation for the specific kind of grief racialized and indigenous folks experience because for a lot of us the grief that we experience is so deeply connected to things that the current very status quo understanding of grief doesn't have the range or the capacity to really understand, right? Also, the current understanding of grief actually does not work for people who are not racialized or indigenous. It does it does not provide the nuances necessary, but also I find that it does not provide the accountability, the reflection, the reconciliation that's required. I find that you just can't really get that from a very current understanding of grief, but specifically an understanding of grief that does not take take into consideration the histories and the realities of um, racialized and indigenous people. Yeah. And I think the other thing is also like pushing back against this idea of a clinical understanding of grief. Um, As much as we always like encourage folks and tell folks that it's important that like, if you feel like you need to see the doctor or whatever, like obviously please like mental health is super important, but we also find that there's a lot of pathologizing people who are grieving specifically racialized people who are grieving because of how we grieve. And because so much of like diagnosing is so subjective to the physician. And if they don't have any sort of like cultural perspective or don't care to, because it's not, necessary. It's just kind of like an add-on that they put into the DSM about like, hey, PS, this is depression or this is complicated grief. But kind of if you take into consideration culture, it may not be. But like, that's it, right? There's not really like a conversation about how different cultures may grieve. Um, And we find that a lot of people feel really traumatized by, you know, going to kind of really clinical or or like medical based professionals to talk about their grief, because there's a lot of push towards like medication and, you know, diagnosing them with X, Y, and Z, instead of really um, having a conversation about the deep rootedness of grief. And the problem with grief is that it can't be solved. And I think for a lot of folks in the medical profession, it's hard to be in a space where you can't solve something for your patient. And so then that in itself causes problems. And that's kind of why I love doing work in hospice, because in hospice, there's a lot of medical folks who already know there is no solution. And so we're here to kind of allow people to be in the fullness of their grief. Yeah, I mean, even thinking about my own personal grief stories, like I remember I was interviewing therapists and one of the therapists I interviewed, she was like, oh, you can schedule like, you know, after you have a productive day. Because one of the things I was going through during grief is like, I just could not get up out of bed. And she was talking about scheduling like 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. as grieving time. And I was just so uncomfortable with that idea because I was like, maybe one day this won't take up my entire day, but this is something that's a part of me right now. And that's most of me right now. And so I definitely didn't go with her. (laughs) But even just thinking about when I was working at a firm that gave me bereavement days and it was just not enough. And they actually didn't give me um, bereavement days for my best friend because 
he was not blood. And honestly, mm-hmm. as a person of color, like family doesn't just, it's not just your immediate nuclear family. It's, it's a whole community. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done here and also just a lot of people without proper care. So before we even just go too far and dive in, I'd like to center us in maybe an ask for the community of listeners or, you know, what ideas y'all encourage us to think about or explore while we're having this conversation. I think the first thing that comes to mind is... um... So something that Carmen and I really is at the center of a lot of the work that we do is that we don't operate through toxic positivity. So we're never going to be those people to be like, you're attracting all that stuff that's happening to you. No, it's racism. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's what we're probably going to, that's what we're going to tell you. So, but in that, we also recognize that grief is like a very hard thing to have conversations about. Right. Um, And not just hard, it's a physical thing. Like, Um, I think this word is overused, but the word embodied really comes to mind. Like grief is an experience. So I always like to encourage people and let people know that like, if you feel uncomfortable about hearing about grief, you're not doing anything wrong. That's actually very understandable. So I think also just like witnessing that and saying like, if you feel uncomfortable with this conversation, it actually means that you're engaging with grief probably pretty well. Yeah. And I think the other thing I think about is um, we often talk about policing and like, uh, like the policing of our emotions and how for a lot of us, we have to, we learn very quickly that there are negative consequences to showing up as fully grieving in the workplace or, you know, around social circles or, you know, depending on like what's going on in your family, things like that, like, because people treat you negatively or brush it off or, you know, invalidate your experience or like, especially at work, there's a lot of like, you're not being productive, you're not focusing, you're not, you know. Um, And so one of the things that we often talk to folks about is like, how are you policing your own emotions? Because a lot of us have been policed in terms of our emotions for a very long time since we were children. And so how does that show up for us internally? Um, And we talk about it often in our grief talks uh, with folks about how are you policing your own emotions? Um, And that often gets people thinking about like, yeah, how, how the world has really hammered it into us that like we need to behave a very specific way to the point where we do that regulating to ourselves. I think one of the things that came to mind while you're talking about that, the policing, um, super important. I guess, how do you reconcile when you do have a lot of responsibilities or you, you know, like we, we all got to work, you know, <laughs> like mostly BIPOC people, we got to work. So like, how do you show up fully as yourself, advocate for yourself without um, just losing all other aspects of your life in a way, like returning to a place where you're okay. I was thinking just in, in regards to, I mean, obviously we have to work like capitalism sucks and here we are. So, you know, <laughs> like we have to pay bills um, to keep a roof over our head and so on and so forth. Um, so yes, that's really important. I think um, like there's so much that you can't really navigate, especially when you're in the thick of it in grief. Like, I feel like at that point, sometimes it's a little too far gone to be able to 
do anything to kind of get there. And so one of the things I tell people is like about being proactive, which is part of like being a death doula, right? Is that like anyone can die at any time. And so like, how are we preparing and how are we looking into our lives into ways to fix that? So, I mean, one of my specializations is bereavement leave policies um, and grief, right? So that's one of the conversations. And like how much bereavement leave policy, like nobody looks at their bereavement leave policy when they start a job. Like that's not the first thing people are generally looking at. But I tell them, like, look at that. Um, and then I also think, like, when you're in the thick of it, reaching out to folks that you know feel safe for you to kind of reach out to. And it doesn't have to be for emotional support. I think one of the main things is that people always think that they need to provide you with emotional support when you're grieving, when oftentimes it's like just the basics. Like, can you Uber me some food or can somebody help with like the kids or, you know, things like that and being open to people doing that for you? Because I think for a lot of us, it's really difficult to, to ask for, can you come help me? And so people get really stuck on like, how can I help you with your emotions? And the truth is that like, when you're in the thick of it with grief, like you just got to wait for time to pass. And so sometimes that's good. But obviously, if you're going into work, it's like you're going to have to in some way dissociate if you're not in a safe space, which sucks. And I say that it does suck. And then eventually, I think things will be okay. And by okay, I mean, like, you'll still be grieving forever, but it won't feel as like as hard, which is why I tell people like, sometimes you have to put on the mask for like the eight hours or 12 hours that you're at work. And then when you get home, if you have people supporting your stuff at home, it's easier for you to just like fall apart. To, to answer your question about like, how do you navigate all of those things? How do you navigate the very intense way grief affects us I think there's something really powerful in what in like acknowledging that this is all terrible um I think sometimes we kind of have this feeling of like well I can power through it and it's just like you can but you really shouldn't have to and it's important to acknowledge that so we can just like click 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 turn the gaslight off on ourselves collectively of thinking that like we're not trying hard enough or we're not getting over our grief quick quickly enough. Um, grief is not something you will ever get over. You grow around it. Um, and this is another reason why I think like really decolonizing how we understand grief is important. Um, because even under, I know from myself as somebody who's been doing a lot of work within grief, I have to remind myself that like you're not bad at grieving. It's just the process of what's going to happen and you're not going to get over it. Um, you can like push the steps aside. They're not helping you because um, you're angry once again about what's happened and that's okay. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is that we are people, like we're human beings. Um, and unfortunately, things like capitalism and colonization make it so that we forget that very, very very easily. Um, so I say that to say that like when we experience grief, it's a physical thing. Um, and we're not machines that have like an HTML code that like can code the grief out of us. We can't do that. Um, so that's something that's really hard. And also we're not meant to do things alone. Um, individualism along with capitalism has made it so that we can, we feel as though we can go through some of the hardest moments of our lives in the past, like four 
three years and be like, I should get better at handling all of this by myself. Um, when we actually should not, none of us should be good at handling the atrocities of life by ourselves. Um, we require support. We do, we are not that far removed from our ancestors who actually required support in order to live. Um, and I think that's something really, really important because I think under capitalism, it is so deeply dehumanizing um, specifically the way that it forces us to alienate ourselves and disassociate ourselves from our literal like bodies so that we can go into work and survive. Um, another thing that I think is important to say is like, it's no one's place to shame you for how you are coping with the grief that you are coping with and when you are not harming anybody. Um, sometimes we can feel as though we are not grieving correctly or good enough um, because our grief does not look like we are crying in the moment. Um, our grief may look like we are getting straight to action and organizing things to do. Um, and I think that's an important thing to remember amongst all of that, that like if you are grieving in a way and no one can really recognize it, people aren't respecting it, it doesn't mean that it's actually wrong. It's still grief that's worthy of support as well. Another thought that really came up in my mind is I don't feel that I was shamed as much during mm -hmm. my grieving process mm -hmm. uh, with, I guess, my um, external life as I was with my personal life. And I think so I'm a, I'm, I'm a kid of refugees. They had to grieve, but they had, you know, like they had to grieve fast. Oh, yeah. And I think they expect me to be strong. And I don't know if this is, I can imagine that this is a similar experience that a lot of um, BIPOC folks have is like, because we are so accustomed to struggling that people almost expect us and people within our own communities expect us to be much stronger much faster and and yeah i think that it adds to that experience as a you know a bipoc person grieving mm -hmm. yeah and i mean kayla and i talk about this all the time with folks like what you're like your experience that you're saying is like very common <laughs> in our groups that we talk about with people being really frustrated with like parents or relatives and and people in their personal life being like you don't have it that hard and you know i, I always make jokes about like yeah the people that say that are often like, you know, are, I, I have a parent who went through a lot of like violence and military stuff related, um, you know, in Central America. And I and I think about how she always talks about how she ha also had to when she came here, she's like, you know, I was a single mom with a child. I did not have time to grieve. And the problem with that is that when you stop working it's going to rear its ugly head. So even if it's been like 20, 30, 40 years, a lot of folks that say that also have like a host of other issues that I'm pretty sure are related to like grief and exhaustion and like, you know, chronic health issues or like, you know, chronic pain and like a bunch of other stuff that like our communities really have to deal with. And so when parents are like, it shouldn't be that hard, I got over it. And you're like, but did you? <laughs> but did you or is it coming out in other ways you know <laughs> and is it is it being handled in other ways and is your need to like work endlessly part of like the coping you know like there's different things and like parents wouldn't necessarily get that because you know especially immigrants like you work till you die <laughs> you just like it just does not stop 
Um, and a lot of us also have that um, mentality because that's how we were raised, right? To like work and work and struggle and whatever. And it's like, we aren't given the grace not to. And sometimes that can be even that in itself is a form of grief. Feeling like you're the people closest to you don't understand what you're going through or like don't seem to care or like have compassion is, is its own grief. So then you're grieving the person that died and then you're also grieving this like earth shattering realization that these people are not there for you in the way that you need it. Um, even if they love you and all that other stuff, like it, you know, it's just like mom and dad, this is not helpful. <laughs> Yelling at me is not helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. I also think, um, yeah, it's really hard when it comes to like having immigrant parents or refugee parents and dealing with grief. Cause so often I like look at like my mother and I'm like, you have so much grief, yet you are roasting me about the fact that I took a nap today. And it's and it's this sort of like double-sided thing because in in one vein, I like always have to not just remind like the older people in my family, but I also find that I have to remind other people that like what I may be going through comparable to what you've gone through, I'm not going to do that. However, it does not mean that I'm not suffering. So why are you okay with watching me go through it instead of helping me out? And that's a really hard question. But also I think for a lot of like, and if we're thinking specifically about folks who are refugees and immigrants, like it's an inherently traumatic process to do that. Right. And I think especially when we think about like the process of moving and immigrating somewhere, the, there's this precariousness of like, is that your home? Um, will you ever truly belong there? And unfortunately, the answer is like, sometimes no, like you constantly are having to deal with those things. So that in and of itself is like grief. And I think also when we understand that grief um, is more than about death is actually specifically about loss. And then there's the added layer of like, and I'm also being empathetic here. I do not have children at all of my own. But I can only imagine that it's extremely hard to watch somebody who or hear somebody go through something when you've go, gone through so much to try to give them the world. And the world that you try to give them, is not, that's not what it ended up being. And I think there's like so many, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about this, but I think there's so many complicated layers of grief, I think, for folks who are refugees, for folks who are immigrants and having to watch everything that's taking place for them is like it's a level of grief that I know as somebody who was born in Toronto on Treaty 13 lands I will never ever have to experience and should I decide to immigrate somewhere else I still will not have to experience anything that they had to and I think that's also the thing about grief it's inherently messy it is so so messy and the moments that we try to like clean it up is when it will fight back and I don't want to fight with grief. I can, I know what to do <laughs> with it. I'm like, I'll stand down. But I do think it's also important to remember that grief is one of those things that it sometimes needs the room to be messy. And I'm experiencing grief about what the people in my family have experienced. They're experiencing grief about what I've experienced. We're experiencing grief about this whole project that brought us all here. Um, and now we're just sitting with each other trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, and that's also really hard to do as well. 
I think you said something about forms of grief, like grieving the not only the loss, but your relationship not going the way that you thought it would go. And I think something that I would love to talk about is the forms of grief. I know y'all talk about grief that we experience that is not related to death. And I mean, to be quite honest with you, like I only ever relate the word grief with death. And so I would love if y'all can talk about that and give us some examples of grief that we may experience not associated with death and how to confront those and hold space for each of them. I mean, I think as somebody who's a social worker, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me in my own grieving process was realizing that so much of grief is not death and dying, but oftentimes it's like what's lacking um, in in your life and like what you weren't given, the opportunities that you lost. And I think for us, like one of the big things we talk about is immigration because we all, we call like immigration a grief journey. Leaving your home is a grief journey. Um, so that's not necessarily death. In fact, a lot of people, you know, expect you to be super grateful that you were able to move and like, yes, I'm very grateful that I am here. I miss my food. I miss my temperature. I miss my people. I miss my language. I, you know, like there's things that just like you don't, it just doesn't feel the same. And I think people don't get that. So for example, like immigration is really big. That's a big one. Kayla and I are about to do a talk on like, you know, queer and trans grief where it's not necessarily about death, but it's just about like being treated like shit and being marginalized. And what does that look like? Yeah. And I mean, there's other things, but I'll let Kayla talk about other stuff. Another form of grief that we oftentimes talk about is anticipatory grief, but it's that preemptive grief of like your body almost knowing that something is going to happen or you may be waiting for something to happen. So I know an example of this that I know I've been feeling a lot recently has been environment and environmental grief. That's another form of grief. And like Carmen mentioned, and like we've mentioned before, grief is really about how our relationship to things change, about what may be lacking lacking what we what we may have lost right so another thing that we often and by often almost all the time talk about is the connection between grief and land and i think as settlers on turtle island that's an important conversation to be having um, because oftentimes we can sort of think about existing on this land in very specific ways but we don't always understand it through a lens of grief and then also through a responsibility as settlers to attend to that grief and be in solidarity with the original caretakers of this land. And something else I wanted to mention was that sometimes we can have, we can be grieving and we don't actually even know that's what it is. Um, Oftentimes in our workshops, what will happen in the sessions that we do have is that folks will be like, I never knew that that could be something that I could grieve. And grief is also one of those things. And I think it's a huge reason why we both, Carmen and I love the work that we do, is because through the work that we do, we give folks a lot of permission to grieve. Yeah, there is, I mean, we're constantly grieving. <laughs> it's just like, there. we're always, there's always loss, there's always lack, mm-hmm. especially like, it feels very heavy right now with the conflicts that are happening in the world. And I I was wondering if y'all had any intersectional grieving practices to share or any personal grieving practices. I think that would help maybe for me to see an example and maybe build my own. 
Yeah. I mean, our grief talks are one of the places where people, and honestly, I was going to tell Kayla this after our our podcast, but I've had people reach out to be like, are you doing another death talk? Because I think we need one. And like, can you do it now? (laughs) You know, like in two weeks, because people want a space where they can just be like, this is shitty. And there are like no solution, you know, because there are no solutions to the stuff that's going on while there are not necessarily things that are in our hands. Um, but there aren't necessarily like ways to fix things immediately. And so people just need a space to be like, I would like to feel shitty with other people who feel shitty so that I don't feel like I'm losing my whole mind here by myself. Um, and I mean, I always say that you can do that on a personal level. Like if you know other folks that are going through that and having that community and having people in your life that you can do that with, I think is like the more personal way to do that without needing us. Cause we always tell folks like, we're just trying to help people build community and like build that space to be honest about what they're feeling. Yeah. I think building on what Carmen has mentioned, I think that there's something very powerful and just saying like things are very bad. Um, and then also practically, I have an autopilot list whenever I feel dysregulated, whenever I'm experiencing too much grief, I can't speak, whenever I have like touched something that I didn't like the feeling of. It doesn't matter. I have an autopilot list when I'm like, this is too much. And on it are things that I'm like, before you start doing anything else, I need you to do these three things. So it'll be, I need you to sit down and like clear a water bottle. I need you to eat carbs. And then the third one is go take a shower. And if I can get all of those three things done, and then what I do after is hop right back into my bed and keep crying. I did it. (laughs) And that's great. Um, And I'm very proud of myself. And I would say that's a fourth thing. Um, You got to be proud of yourself no matter what you did or didn't do based off of your autopilot list. Um, I think each day that we get up to be like, I'm going to put food in my body and some clothes on my back and like let wind touch my face. That's great. I think a lot of us are doing our best and we still have this expectation that it's going to be like it was when we, when everything was going right. And that's just not the case. So I think removing that expectation of ourselves um, really, really, really does help. And then getting back to basics, I find helps me a lot whenever I'm dealing with grief. That the community that you were alluding to, Carmen, is so important. I, I remember even like looking for a community that because, you know, sometimes when you're grieving and everyone around you knows the person that died when we're all grieving, it's like you are trying to also find community where you're not weighing heavy on the people that are also grieving. Sometimes your grieving journeys don't mesh. And so I actually started going on this app called Yoni Circle, which is so amazing. It's for women and gender expansive people, and it's all over the world. And like, like you were saying, like someone might want a talk right now, you could do that on um, Yoni Circle and it will put you in a room with five or six other people. And then you go around sharing, you do, I think, a centering practice together, whether it's breath work. That really helped me when I was searching for, I guess, a community outside of my current grieving community. I think that was a personal grieving practice that helped me. And then I also want to take a moment. Now, we're talking so much about grieving. I do want to celebrate 
all that BIPOC grief and death talk is and what y'all have been able to build and talk about what the potential impact could be if there are more groups like this. So yeah, we started this in 2020. Before um, 2020, Carmen and I were part of a board of directors of a collective. um, And through that, we had done a death cafe. And then I want to say maybe like June into the pandemic. So June 2020, um, we had like just started talking again and talked about like, do you think it might be a good idea to hold a like session um and we did it and we had lots of people turn out and then we were like see you next month um and then we did it again the next month and then we started doing different versions of it right so we did things like grief and Im- immigration um we did things like grief and friendship grief and pets grief and disability um because we started to understand that through the conversations that we were having um, people's the way that we understand grief specifically for racialized and indigenous people is so nuanced and we need to we need more room to be able to have those conversations um so we hold them monthly um we always like to say that through our workshops through our sessions folks don't need to turn on their microphones um they do not need to turn on their cameras they just get to show up we also encourage folks to eat and hang out and to lay in their couch or do whatever they may need to um they are free of cost um it would be so weird to turn around and um tell the truth about capitalism and then be like yes right um so we all of our sessions that we do um are free of charge and it's really really beautiful um and it's a space that i'm very very honored to, to to be part of um and also doing this work with carmen is like a dream come true so yeah and and i um i love working with kayla as well because kayla's a dream and uh i just working as two folks who are chronically ill and disabled and neurodivergent and racialized like we create the space that we know we needed that we couldn't find and so that's where all of these like things come in about like listen you know for forced participation in that sense is like not not it <laughs> we just don't feel that that's like conducive to grief and so being able to to have that space where we can tell people like you can just do whatever because we have had people who have come to our groups and they're like what's the agenda and then we have to be like power down <laughs> we don't have to do it that way um and our i think like our dream is to see that kind of expand and one of the things we've noticed is that people who have joined our groups will then take that kind of modality if you want to call it and then put that into the work that they do um because they realize that there's just like other ways to connect with folks that aren't so based in like colonial scholarly nonsense that we've been so told is like necessary where everybody has to speak everybody has to introduce themselves you know and that's kind of a dream come true for us because people always tell us they're like oh I I never thought that I could do that because if you're not given that as an option ever then you're never going to know that that's there um, and even when folks talk about grief, we've had people who've been like, oh my God, I've been talking to everybody about grief. Anytime somebody tells me about like things that are going on in, in their life, I'm like, that sounds like grief. <laughs> and we're like, that's amazing. And that always like makes us feel like this work is, is really worth it. 
And it feels really beautiful to see people being like, yeah, I can talk about this. This is great. This is like a way for me to connect with everyone. And and it's not scary. And, you know, sometimes they'll be like, they looked at me like I had six heads, but I tried. <laughs> you know? That's absolutely amazing and so necessary, first of all, the work that y'all are doing. But I, I know we're coming to a close for um, this conversation. And I do want to ask each of you for a nugget of wisdom um, to share. It could be related to your work. It could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I had something in, in my head around, <laughs> if you're an immigrant or your parent, sorry, if you're a younger person who's either an immigrant with parents uh, who are alive um, or family that's like here, and you know that you will have to be the one to take care of any sort of death and dying things if something happens to them, please ask them relevant questions like where do they want to be buried? Have these conversations with folks. People thought about this because, I mean, in the work that we've been doing, Kayla and I, there's a lot of folks who are like, oh, my God, I had to bury, you know, somebody died unexpectedly. And then our family expected us to send them home. It's $10,000 to send them home. What do we need to do? As a death doula, my, my wish, my hope, and my dream is for people to be proactive about having those conversations, especially those of us who are racialized, whose families, who have family back home and who like may not want to be buried where they died, you know? Yeah. They may, there's complications with being not originally from this land uh, (laughs) that I think isn't always taken into account. Yeah. And I think that it ties into what we were talking about with land as well. So that's really important. Thank you for that. So what I have to share is going to be two things. I think the first thing is that sometimes we can grieve things that we may not have necessarily experienced in our lifetime, but things that maybe our parents have experienced, our ancestors have experienced. And I want you to know that that's very valid. Um, I think sometimes we can sort of feel like, well, I don't, I didn't experience that. Therefore, it shouldn't be hard on me. Let me just start turning this gaslight on myself. Um, And I think it's really important to remember that, like, we absolutely grieve things that we have not experienced and that the people who have come before us have experienced. Um, And then the final thing is a quote that I always have close to me. It's, you are not wrong. Wrong is not your name. Um, And that is by June Jordan. It is still very important to me, um, but I do like to share it just because it's very simple yet very powerful. And I think a lot of the time around grief, we can all think that we're like wrong for feeling it or find a way to make ourselves feel terrible about it. Um, But you're not wrong. Like you are not inherently inherently wrong to experience grief. It's inevitable. Thanks for that. That's, I love that quote. So for my very last question, I do want to ask, you know, what has got to give for us to be living in a world where grief can look intersectional, can be, can honor everyone that is grieving. Yeah. What, what, what do we got to do to get there? I think the first step is like breaking down this idea that we need to do things alone. I think community is where everything starts looking at like taking care of each other as a form of self-care. You're caring for yourself, you're caring for others, you're caring for the land. Uh, What does that look like? And I think that that would be, that's a good jumping off point for people to understand each other more, be there for each other more, and feel less lonely and isolated in whatever feelings that they're having. 
the thing that comes to mind for me is humanity. And I know it's giving very much just like cringy, but like, follow me. It's I'm going to land soon. I swear. We live in a society where no one really sees their own humanity. So how could you see somebody else's, right? Also, when it comes to humanity, please do not for one second think that things like um, homophobia and racism and so many things are not connected to how people see someone else's humanity. And that's why I say it. Grief is an inherently human thing. It's, an, it's a thing that you'll have to experience because you exist. Unfortunately, we live in a society that does not support people existing in ways that are self-determining, in ways that feel good for them, in ways that allow them to not only remember themselves, but the people who came before them. It's quite disturbing for me to see how much we live in a society where people don't see one another's humanity. But when it comes to like, how can we understand a new definition of grief? So much of how we understand grief right now is because like the humanity of other people is inherently missing. The idea that there are policies that tell people you only have three days to grieve and they get to choose who is grievable is wild to me, but also demonstrates that you're not seeing that somebody is a human being and that grieving is not going to be wrapped up in three to five days. Yeah, I think it's a lot more of an urgent issue about how we don't see people's humanity and how we make decisions about that. Seeing people as humans has been a struggle for us and this individualism that is just permeating all of society, even self-care, even grieving, even anything that is meant to help us has been so detrimental that it it brings me to this quote from Bell Hooks. And I think it really relates to what we've been talking about. It's, I am often struck by the dangerous narcissism fostered by spiritual rhetoric that pays so much attention to individual self-improvement and so little to the practice of love within the context of community. You know, I, I really, really appreciate our conversation. I had so much fun, learned so much. I can just see how much Um, Your talks must be helping people. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. For more information, head to our website at whatgivesproject.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.